Over the past year, we've leveraged Vistaprint services to help us on our mission to inspire entrepreneurs of color. They've helped us print stickers, t-shirts, tote bags, mugs, and even snapback hats. Yes, they print just about everything. My point is, they print a lot more than just business cards. So as you look for ways to help your small business stand out, think Vistaprint. The printabilities are endless at vistaprint.com. I learned about it somehow, thought it was exciting, and thought I could build a program for Karma Loop. And I was like, you know what? This is before influencer culture mm-hmm. existed. I was like, we should send these people free product so they could put them on their hall pages and then and put and then put a uh, the young brilliance. <laughs> and I was like, and we could put a link in the description code with like a promo code or whatever. And so we tested it, and we tested it with two people. This girl that was like very like edgy house of horrors like spencer gifts kind of vibe but like loved like unif and like all those like you know bad girl brands so she was like perfect and she had like silver hair and this like swaggy dude named jacob keller who uh, does he live in portland jacob keller lives in portland that's the i said his name because i was like we should we should see if he's there oh my god i'm sure he (laughs) i'm sure he'll remember me but he was he was one of the first hauls that we did we sent him this stuff and then you know, we got the results in and it was a 24 to one return on investment. And we had never seen anything that high before, especially right. from like an unproven, untested marketer. Mm-hmm. Karma Loop was my first marketing job mm-hmm. and I had no experience. I was very lucky to get the job, but some of the flack that Karma Loop gets is hiring people that didn't have experience. Mm-hmm. But to that I say, look at me now, I got the experience, <laughs> didn't I? I did yeah. Exactly. And so we scaled it and we scaled it to become like a million dollar program. I'm Bima, and on today's show, our guest is Heather White, owner of Trillfit. Heather was a black sheep who functions with her left brain in a right brain family. She went to boarding school where on the surface was regimented and rigid, but operated more like Gossip Girl by night. Feeling profoundly misunderstood at home and at school, Heather developed a knack for building community for the misfits. While she majored in poetry and gender studies at Boston College, she somehow pivoted from that to working in fashion marketing moving from Shebop as a fashion correspondent to millennial streetwear cornerstone, Karma Loop, where Heather thrived under her boss, who made sure that, although Boston isn't the most diverse, his staff would be. Working at Karma Loop taught Heather that work culture could be fun, but understanding politics was just as important. After developing a really successful program at Karma Loop, she moved to brands like Puma and New Balance, working with everyone from Meek Mill to Jack Harlow. But Heather was ready to get physical in her own right, which led her to start her own business, Trillfit. In our conversation ahead, Heather shares a story about navigating her own family dynamic. They came here for college, so they went to Lehman College in the Bronx, and they met in the craziest way, and I kind of feel like the way that they met has influenced my 
view of love because they met in chemistry class. And my in dad, chemistry class? Yes, they met in chemistry class. My dad was this like big, sexy, like man about town <laughs> into his like Bruce Lee karate and like all of this stuff. And my mom was like this really meek chemistry student mm. who later became a chemist. And they were partners in chemistry class. And I think he had like flustered her so much just by like his <laughs> presence that she lit herself on fire. Stop her, it. Wait, no, literally. You're, you're, no, this is this is a real story. And they're not even dramatic like this, so they would never exaggerate or lie. Her sleeve went up into flames. In class. And in class. And he put it out. And that's literally that's literally how they met. She's and like, you saved me. A hundred percent. And it was like like love ever after. Wow. You know? Yeah. Wow. And it's funny to think about now because I feel like I have, you know, both of their best qualities, but I am so different mm. than both of them, which can be really, really, really challenging. And also, like, they're super old school people, right? Like, you know, they came from little countries colonized yeah. by Great Britain to America for a better life. And for them, a better life, and for most immigrants, like, looks one way. Right. And so if you take paths or turns or you don't do Outside it that way, that, yeah, they're like, wow, we failed, you failed. You're gonna be fail. Oh, you're gonna be homeless. The, what was what was being pushed on you? A hundred percent. Like, and I you're the only child. I have an older brother, but okay. my older brother was like the star of the family. Incredible <laughs> soccer player. Went to Stanford, studied mechanical engineering, and became really accomplished. And like, I went to school and studied poetry. You know, and was a person that had a lot of feelings and ideas. And everyone looked at me like, What are you gonna do with that? Yeah. <laughs> Great that you're inquisitive. Mm -hmm. How'd that pay the bills? Yeah, how and I'm does like, that pay the bills? You know, I know. And I'm still figuring it out, to be <laughs> we honest. All are. We, all we all are. Tell me, so what was the age gap between you and your brother? Seven years. Okay. So it's funny that you asked if I was an only child because I tell people it felt like we were both raised like only children mm. because we had a seven year gap. And then my brother left in eighth grade when he was 13 for boarding school. So I was six or seven. And then I left for boarding school when I was 14. Wow. So it was a really small time period that we mm -hmm. were together in the house mm -hmm. um, but our relationship has like changed and evolved since then of course you're adults now right it's yeah. a little different but yeah. take me back to this boarding school era so that's a little bit foreign to me I only saw that in like gossip movies or, or, or stuff like that and yeah this you, you've used this analogy before with gossip girl but tell me about like was going to boarding school ever a weird thing for you like what was how was it framed to you as a kid how it was framed to me as a kid uh, was you're going to boarding school, right? <laughs> so like any immigrant that is watching this will have this feeling as like, as a child of immigrants, like you don't really get agency. Mm. You, like you, you're not choosing things for yourself. It is it's decided like, what's exactly, happening. It's decided for you and like that's your path. And I remember being so upset when my parents were sending me to boarding school because I had like, just gotten popular like you know and I was like yeah y'all don't even know I've been fighting to sit I've at this table this. I'm here yeah. I'm in they like it I'm fresh I was this girl from the Bronx surrounded by mainly white really rich people including like Bruce Springsteen's son like this is in boarding school or this is before? this is when I was in middle school in middle so school. my parents so I'll back it up a little bit my parents had an interesting view of education I think sort of impacted and lensed by their view and their experience of racism. And I do think that immigrants experience racism differently than black Americans mm. do. Um, and I think it's really nuanced. And so my brother got in trouble in school and was going to public school. And because my brother got in trouble in school, which 
I mean, I was alive when it happened, but I don't know the yeah, full. Yeah, you were too young to understand yeah, exactly. the context of what was way, happening. Like there. way, 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 way too young. When I hear it now, I'm like, oh, these people were just super racist. Yeah. Um, but my parents vowed that I would never go to public school because of that experience that, one that they experience. had. Because wow. of that one experience of how my brother was treated in public school. You know, I've heard this story of like my brother did very well on like a test and the, mm -hmm. the teachers were so surprised and were convinced that it had to be a fluke and just yeah. like just the way that they managed him in school my parents hated and they so they slaved away literally to put me in private school for my entire life so wow. even though from the Bronx all of this stuff was socialized and raised mainly around very very rich elite white people hmm. and I was oh it was me and my one friend we were the only black girls in the entire there was like three black girls in the entire school and so so it was really interesting and challenging, but so to be in a situation like that, that is definitely like a microcosm of white supremacy and to cut through, mm -hmm. right? After being raised by parents who were like, you have to be well-liked and you have yep. to do this and you have to really feel like I was like making some progress. And then for them to say, no, uh, no you got to do this <laughs> other thing. I was like, no, what yeah. are you talking about? How did that really translate in real life in the household? Like, were you beefing with your parents because oh, of this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but like, but here's the thing. It's like when you beefing with your parents and like, like you're an immigrant, it's all internal, right? You be raging like DMX, you like you mad, like you, you want to bark in your mom's it. face. Yeah. Hell no. Yeah. No, I don't want to get beat up. No. <laughs> yeah. So you're just like saying it to yourself. I just like, I think if I had to think about that time in my life, like what it felt like in my body was like a restrained energy. Mm -hmm. Like a, if you could think of like the Hulk when he gets bigger, but mm -hmm. like trying to like trying to hold it yeah in. trying to hold it in was like how it's I felt right but like it's so funny to compare that to how I feel in my life now because it's taken so much work and growth and healing and talking to therapists and to spiritual advice to unlearn all of this to mm. just be happy being myself, mm. you know? And to be like the face of a new movement in wellness means like that you should feel good in your body. And so one of the most challenging things for me is I say to my parents all the time, I'm like, where are your friends visiting you? You know, you guys are retired, mm. you know? You, sh you should have visitors. You yeah. should be doing things that you like. Like this is what you came to America right. for. Right, this, like, this is the this better is, life that exactly. you were working this, so hard for. This is literally the better life. And you know, I see so many people in my family who are like miserable, upset, mm. depressed, angry, uh, because they don't know how to like explore their emotions, because they don't know how to talk about things, because a lot of them don't believe in therapy. A lot of them have so much trauma, they can't even begin to Again. unpack it, yeah. which is really sad. And for me, like looking at them has made me realize like while going through a divorce, I don't want my life to look like that. And so mm. I'm taking like very deliberate steps and actions to make sure that my life doesn't look like that. And for them, they can't even imagine a life that's better than what they have because it is so much better than the, what, what they, they experienced. Right. Like and when I was my like, age. I'll take exactly. some of these hits. Exactly. I'll take this. That's yeah. that is how I would describe my mom mm. like in a sentence. She's like, this is so much better. She was one of nine kids in a Christian fundamentalist family in Belize like without running water. Yeah, she's like, hey, no, exactly. Heather, I'm good. No, like, she's I like, hear I, all of that, exactly. but. <laughs> she, you know, like she loves air conditioning, for example. She never had that before. <laughs> and she loves to make a joke if we're on vacation. She'll be like, it's so funny. I can't exist without air conditioning anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, funny. you earned it, mommy. You got it. It's different. It's just, mm -hmm. it's and it's generational differences exactly. too. Uh, you shared a lot that I definitely want to get back to. I can't let you off the hook on, <laughs> on a lot of those things, but I want to go back real quick to the reference of Gossip Girl in mm -hmm. boarding school. What did that mean to you? Like, what can you describe instances that you can pull out? Yeah, that? I mean, 
the similarities between like what Gossip Girl portrays and like my real life boarding school experience, everyone's rich, everyone's wealthy, everyone's wearing designer stuff. Gossip Girl is set in New York. I went to boarding school near Princeton, New Jersey, but it was very close to New York. Right, right. Everyone was always sneaking out to New York on the weekends. Everyone was taking the bus or the train or however you could get there to do yeah. cool stuff. So like being young people living together in one place and like experiencing life and growing up together is really interesting yeah. with no one's parents there. So like that's a similarity between Gossip yeah. Girl, right? And Gossip Girl allowed them the privilege to like exist as miniature adults because their parents weren't there because they were rich. Right. Whereas for us, we were acting as like de facto mini adults because our parents just sent us to boarding school and we and we lived there mm -hmm. instead of living at home with them and the teachers were the ones meant to manage mm -hmm. us but then it's like you know you have some teachers that you're cool with and some teachers oh, yeah. that are super that right, are right. on you, you know? And so, like, I would say, like, the salacious parts of Gossip Girl, like, you know, relationships with teachers, um, kids mm. hooking up with each other, like, sex, sex parties, group sex, lots of drugs, all of that stuff completely happened. What? Um, 100%. And I feel like it was, like, a real generational thing, to be honest. Like, I feel like kids that go to boarding school now as Gen Z probably don't experience it this way, but I think for us, like... We were figuring out who we were. Yes. Social media did not exist. No, you actually kind of were in a, a bubble no, we, of protection. We, no, we literally, I'm so glad I was in that bubble of protection. <laughs> I'm like, yikes, thank God no one was taking pictures at like yeah. what, you know, like what we were doing. But I think like what I saw amongst me and my friends is like we all felt profoundly misunderstood for whatever mm. reason, right? Like my be like one of my best friends was this guy, Jay, and he was like the only out gay guy in the entire school. Um, and I didn't realize how crazy that how must big have is the been school? for him. It was like a hundred people in each class, okay. so small class small, sizes. Small, private, right? Exactly, but still like five hundred people. That's still a lot of the, people. The, only the only one out in public, so he's very isolated. You know, the only isolated. one, exactly. And that's not to say that he was the only gay man on no, campus. No, it just means he was the only one that exactly. was exactly. But then being outward. his friend, and then literally like hearing about him, like hooking up with all of these other guys who would just be mm. assholes. Hmm. And you'd see it, right? And hmm. this was before people were talking about, like, what does it mean to be LGBTQ? Or, right. like, you know, people didn't ask, what are your pronouns? Or how do you identify? It was just seen as, like, weird, yeah. right? And yeah. like the uh, So it's like, that was, like, a category. And then it's like, if you were black, that was its category. Mm -hmm. And then international students were their own, own category. category. Right. Because international students, like were wealthy, and that's how they came. Came from money, exactly. so there was a, already a relatability there. Exactly, right? exactly. So they had less hurdles to like jump through to get understood, where it's like the black kids was very much the energy of like, oh, y'all just all got busted. Hmm. But one thing that I loved, for example, is like I was president of the French club and I threw a party one year, and I'll say like, you know, despite all of like the weird like class and societal issues that we had in boarding school, I'll say like in any classist society, the lines of color like run deep and like mm. when you really have that authenticity like it means something and so like I remember like I threw this like Moulin Rouge party for the French club and um, this is also the era of when everyone had a name everyone called their crew something I don't even know if kids do this anymore but the black boys was called D-Block LOL state prop state prop um, and so literally I remember all the boys from D-Block came to my French party all of them. Yeah. And it's literally, if you can imagine, it's like 15 girls in like mini prom dresses with like masquerade masks oh and we're like God. eating like crepes and watching Moulin Rouge and it's like 25 yeah. black dudes, yeah. D-block, filing in to get they crabs. And I was like, <laughs> seen it, heard.
heard and seen and heard and showing up and making spaces feel good for you. So I learned a lot in boarding school. And it sounds like Um, you were you're pretty good at cultivating community and bringing people together. Like, it seems like you had this natural... Yeah. It was natural for you to lead and it was natural for you to bring people together. Is that right or do you... It is, but I didn't realize it until recently. And even hearing you frame that as like, like I totally had a community in boarding school and it was Mm -hmm. like the freaks and the losers, (laughs) right? Everyone that felt misunderstood. Yeah, all of the queer people, the people of color, my roommate was bi and everyone slut shamed her. Mm. Um, And then my best friend, was Costa Rican and like really, really, really like brilliant, really smart, but loved to party. So she would hang out with us and everyone thought she was weird. But yeah, like we like we made a home for ourselves. And yeah. I feel like that experience of like, you know, feeling understood for the first time and meeting your people, I think transformed and powered my life in such a way that now, like, I really think about building community in like a conscious way. And and what does it actually take to do it? Mm -hmm. And then how do you maintain it? And how do you do it in different circumstances? Like Mm -hmm. we had to figure that out with COVID. Right, yeah. Um, It requires rethinking everything that you thought you knew. Every plan that you thought you had for wherever you thought your business was going to go. You had to go all the way back to ground level and reevaluate. I know you had to do some things there um, and we'll definitely get to that. Uh, I wanted to ask you about as you start to think about your life transitioning to an adult after that, I know you went to school, right? And you went to Boston College mm-hmm. for poetry. I did. And, <laughs> and women's and gender studies. No one ever thought I would get a job. <laughs> and I'm, I'm laughing so I I'm had to hire myself. Yeah, I'm thinking about what you said about your parents. And I'm yeah. like, I'm so curious what they thought about your, your major and if they gave you gripe about that. So... You know what? They actually, I feel like the way that I tell the story makes it seem like they gave a lot of gripe. You know what? They actually did not really give a gripe because it was so under their radar that they really didn't even care. Mm. How which come? For, which Why was it under the like, radar, though? It's college. I mean, not like, we, I wasn't the star of my family. And like my sort of... You felt of, like it was on your brother. Totally. Favorite. And I feel like my sort of self journey has been to like find my self-esteem and become this person and trust my voice and Mm -hmm. do all of these things because it's like when you grow up in a Jamaican household as like a young woman and you have an older brother, it's all about him, the firstborn son. Mm. Like growing up, men eat before you, they get served before you, Mm. like they're respected in a different way than you are. And like my dad never talked to me as a child. Because he... Not a tradition, just custom. Yeah, he, he wasn't involved in, like, my upbringing. Like, he would go to my dance recitals and stuff, and that was awesome. But, like, in doing this level of personal work that I'm doing now, I've realized that, like, the fact that I was, like, completely ignored by one of my parents completely informed the way that I build relationships, like, with mm. men now, for example. And, like, the one thing about me is, like, I hate being ignored, and I, and I hate feeling, like, unseen. And for sure, like, that feeling comes from someplace. From that place. Yeah. How does that show up in your relationship? Well, so, well, have you ever heard of Attached? No, tell me. Okay, so I haven't read the book, but we should read it together. So it's a book about relationship styles, about, like, how you show up in relationships. And I took the test to figure out, like, what my attachment style is. And it is literally, so my attachment style is anxious, preoccupied, and it's basically, and and I'm not even a person that, like, feels like an anxiety person in real life. So it was interesting to learn more about it. Mm -hmm. But basically, it comes from a place of, like, you, like, go overboard in relationships, you do all the work, you do all the things, 
because mm. you feel inside that you have to work you really, have to work you have to, to work really hard attention. to get someone to love you or to get someone's attention. Wow. Like I didn't even realize how deep I was in that. And I was in a marriage that I wasn't happy with and, and different things that came from that place. And so mm. when I was reading about this attachment style, it's like, you often see this in, you know, families where the parents give inconsistent care to their children. And it's most often seen when one parent gives a ton of love and affection and the other parent does not at all. And I literally read this and I was like, because I didn't even realize that that was weird because everyone I know yeah. that's an immigrant group the same way. So it's just part of the culture. You yeah, didn't know that something like, stood out. Yeah. I was in ballet my entire youth and like everyone's dad looked bored to be there. <laughs> So I didn't think that that, you know what I'm saying? But yeah. I didn't think that that was normal, mm -hmm. right? But then like my dad at my brother's soccer games engaged, yelling mm -hmm. from the sideline. Yelling, jumping literally up Literally used to get ejected from games because <laughs> he was like riling up yep. these kids too much. Do you know? Yeah. And so, but like things like that, you know, form the different pieces of you. And so I think like the lesson from that and from boarding school is like what became important to me was like, there are so many people in this world who just feel like they don't matter. Mm -hmm. And if you can make a home for them, <laughs> you can just improve people's lives. And I think for me, going through COVID, like I really see it. Also, just in the hotel, I was like watching an episode of Catfish and I haven't seen it in years. I was like, but like, think about it. That's so Literally, funny that you think, were watching think, Catfish. Think about it. Think about it. There are so many people lying about who they are because right. they desperately want love and attention and affection because they don't get it from any Anywhere place else. else. And the only way that they feel like they can get it is by lying to yes. you and like ruining someone else's life. I just and watched now, a whole doc about Manti Teo. That whole thing was about catfishing. It's crazy. But it started with what you just said about what they weren't receiving at home. Right. They felt unseen. They felt unheard. Right. And I feel like it's only now that like the human condition is starting to talk about this, where people are like, yeah. loneliness is an epidemic. Racism is a public health crisis. <laughs> like, and these are things that we have been silently enduring for so long. And like, when I think about my dad, I'm trying to do it really compassionately because like I like who's to say if he knows that he didn't pay any attention to me or not? Who knows, right? Who's to say? If and he's, how's if he's, he, you know, how's he face that, yeah, that criticism? Yeah. Who's aware? I don't think he's, I don't think he's really facing it because we don't speak right now. Mm. But like, I would never want to hold him responsible for that because he just doesn't know any better. He doesn't know he any better. He knows he, Yeah. And like, if people only know what they know, and if they don't know, you can't fault them. Mm -hmm. And I see this in Trillfit all the time because we hire from the community. <laughs> we hire very black. Like, not everyone's had a corporate job before. Some people don't know that you can't cuss someone out. Right. Don't yeah. know the communication style. No, don't exactly. know how to address exactly. certain things. Exactly. And that's fine. You just have to find a way to, like, let them know. Yeah. And, and bring them on the journey. Them. Meet them where they are. Exactly. Take me to... So you did poetry. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with that. But you ended up going into, let's call it fashion, and you went to Style Boss, and then you ended up at Karma Loop in marketing. How does one go from poetry to marketing? <laughs> yeah, it was actually crazy. So I went to BC right after having gone to boarding school. Okay. So for me, it was a great thing because I had already gotten all of my partying out of my <laughs> system, right? So it's like I had done drugs, I had drank, I had done all of these things. So, so it I wasn't knew new. exactly it wasn't new for me. And I knew when I got to college, I was like, I'm here to work to get a job because hmm. I knew that my parents weren't going to give me money when I graduated. So oh, I was yeah. like, you had a timeline. Had... <laughs> exactly, because I saw my brother do it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I was like, and he was going to Stanford. So I was like, okay, let me like figure out this plan. 
So I had internships every single semester wow. along with a part-time job in the theater district in mm. Boston where I worked at Blue Man Group as a cocktail waitress, <laughs> which is like the funniest job that I've ever had, but definitely one of my favorites for sure. And so um, I got really good at like balancing a bunch of things. And so my senior year, I applied to Teach for America with my best friend um, and went through this whole crazy rigorous process. And I felt like so convinced that I should be a teacher, hmm. right? Because I just felt that my life and the way that I grew up would have been so much different and so much nicer if I had had a teacher that really cared about me to really connect with me, mm -hmm. to show me that like being creative was something that you could do and not like a way to be homeless. Right. <laughs> like I literally watched this episode of Blackish the other day and whatever, it's a funny episode, but it's so eye roll because it's Valentine's Day and like Dre up with his wife and so he goes to the bathroom because he's so upset he gets to the bathroom and there's like 10 other guys there who also up with their wives on Valentine's Day and the bathroom attendant comes out and he's this like older white man that kind of looks like Chef Boyardee with like a twirl mustache and he's like the maitre d' of the bathroom the guy that holds the mints and he rattles off some incredible like you know Alfred Lord Tennyson quote to everyone in the bathroom and he's giving them all this love like advice and Drake goes to him and he's like bro, like, I just feel like you're speaking to my heart. Like, where do you get this from? He's like, oh, I was a poetry major. And I'm like, yo, f that. I was a poetry major too. And I'm not a bathroom attendant. I don't work in a bathroom. But that's literally the optics. the optics. Do you know what right. I'm saying? Right. And so um, it was tough. And so I applied for Teach for America. I got in and I was very excited to do it. And I had a friend that I had met in a creative writing program hmm. who lived in Nashville, Tennessee. And I don't know why, but I put Tennessee on the list of, I know, it was really dumb. Tennessee? It was really dumb. Because okay. here was my thing. I, I put New York, I put, mm -hmm. I put Boston, and my third choice, I put Tennessee, because in my head I thought, you know what, I wouldn't mind getting placed where my friend lives. I would love to see Ariel more. Yeah, like, this know, is going to be so think, great. You don't think about the environment and Literally. the community. Yeah. And so, I mean... It's probably very few black people that are going to put Tennessee on their list for like, let me become a teacher with the most need. <laughs> and they placed me in Tennessee in like a super rural area. And I remember getting the assignment hmm. and weighing it heavily. And I remember bringing it to Blue Man Group and talking to my friend Judith and her boyfriend at the time was ex-military and had been stationed near where they were going to put me for Teach for America. Hmm. And he was somebody who like, looking at Rob from the outside would maybe not be someone supportive of me, but like he, like everyone at Blue Man yeah, Group literally yeah. like loved me so much. And he took one look at it and he said, I don't think you should go there. Hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, they're racist. They're racist. He's like, and you're not gonna have any family there. He's like, are you gonna have any friends there? He's like, does your friend live in Nashville? He's like, cause Nashville is different than it's where different. this is right. and where this is. Um, and so I didn't take the job. And for a long time, I waffled over it because I was like, I really wanted to help kids and children. Mm. And I really believed in that mission. And then to not take a job at Teach for America, to take a job that I got offered at a company called Style Boston to be like a fashion sort of correspondent felt really frivolous to a mm. family of immigrants that like value math and science. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I think for me, that kind of started like the forging of my new path. Yeah. And as I went through everything, I think for me, I always knew that I was like the underdog in my family and an underdog in general. So I worked really hard to get respect. Mm -hmm. And like the better I got, you know, the better jobs that I got, I would push myself to like try to win my family's right, respect. You them to, to see that, hey, I know it's not this, but 
I hope you can see that this is also still a valid way to spend my time, a valid way to contribute to society. Yeah, it would know. be so nice if my parents told me that what I do for a living is a valuable way to spend my time, but I don't mm. think it's ever happened. And mm. I don't know if it ever will. Are you okay with that? I guess I'll like have to be, I guess I'm getting more okay with it mm -hmm. because it's like, again, like a recovering people pleaser. So like was really, really important for me. Literally like the way that people talk about me now, like you can see it. I'm so good at getting people to like me and pitching mm -hmm. and like, do, you know, yeah, do, doing all doing the things all you the especially things. have to do as a founder. But it's like, it takes a lot of effort to do that. And what I've realized is like at the end of the day, I wish my parents were proud of me, but it's okay if they're not because I have a whole community of people who of are course. like endlessly proud of me. Of and I had to make a decision for myself that's just like, you know what, those are the people I'm going to do it for and not these people because DNA. It's not for them. Yeah, DNA is DNA, but yeah. it's, not, it's not for them. It's okay. Yeah. Tell me about the time at Carmelo. Because the time at Carmelo. What do you, you want to know about Carmelo? You, you know, and you're Carmelo a sneaker was an era, yeah, and, and streetwear and all those things. I grew up on Carmelo. When we weren't going to the skate shop or the, the sneaker boutique, we were getting a lot of stuff off of Carmelo. And I feel like y'all had the attention of that consumer group. You know, this was like complex was still in print. You know, I, I feel like during this time, Damn, what, Complex what? <laughs> was still in print. I think it was still in print. It was, because it was still, Mark Echo was like still at Complex. Yeah, then. it was, he was still like the face of the business. And there, there was, you know, Karma Damn, Loop was kind of, so I think old. I came across Karma Loop through that universe somehow. Yeah. And you were in marketing and you had like access to like big level talent. At a young age, you were like working with some of these folks, like Pharrell and stuff like that. Like, tell me about Karma Loop. <laughs> uh, so, uh, there's so much to say about Karma Loop, and it actually doesn't come up as much in interviews as you think mm. it would. And I would just love someone to do a, doc I mean, I a think documentary. It's a pretty on Karma pivotal Loop. part of like you as a marketer has to be. I mean, it is. So here's what I'll say about Karma Loop. Karma Loop, outside of Trillfit, is probably the only job that I've had that felt like a true privilege to work there. Hmm. Um, and more. so like Greg Selko as a CEO has definitely gotten a lot of flack and everybody knows it and, uh, and you know, I'm definitely not going to talk about it. But one of the things that I think he did brilliantly was community build. And I think he was like mm. one of the first community builders I ever met hmm. because I would look around the office at Karma Loop and even though it was in Boston, a racist, very white city, I saw Japanese girls and black people and Dominicans and Cape Verdeans and we were all there and we were all treated phenomenally and we were all friends and it was incredible. And so having someone like really embrace diversity and inclusion before it was something that was mm. talked about was incredible. Right. You know, I don't even think, I mean, Karma Loop is the only job I ever had that I had a black boss. Ever? Ever. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like at Puma, Let's see, when I worked at Puma, I, at least for the first, I don't like want to get the dates right because you guys are all so big on dates. At least <laughs> for the first year and a half that I worked at Puma, I was the only black person in marketing. Um, Sounds about right. Yeah, and I had, two, I had two friends on product, one on footwear, one on apparel. They were black. Um, there was one, maybe there was like one black girl on, a, <laughs> on apparel for performance. At New Balance, I was the only black marketer, definitely for North America, and I think also globally. Wow. Mm -hmm. it, you know, I'm not shocked by it. When I was when I was at Saucony, it was I was the only black person of 400 people in a, a building full of other brands. And totally. It was a I don't know how it was for you, but it was a, a real shock to my system because yeah. of the external images 
what I thought the industry was. Yeah, same for me, but worse because of my experience at Carmel. I just assumed that it was going to be better. Yeah, because I was like at Carmel. It was like you know, it was still a startup, so it's startup energy, right? You have to lobby for every dollar. You have to go to the CEO and make him. Honestly, you know what? Let me thank Greg Salco for probably and Leandra Robinson for being like my first ever like pitch practice, right? <laughs> like you had to go to them directly and get them to believe in your idea to get money. To get the funding to right? do it, right? No one had budgets. Mm-hmm. We Like we didn't have that. It was approved from the top. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Because even though we had 200 people or however many people worked at Carmel Loop, like it was still small enough that, th- that those were just the processes that you had right. to go through. So it was like that. But then at the same time, like you would walk down the hallway and like Pharrell would be there. <laughs> and you know, we're all young women, of course. And I remember I had a friend who was a buyer who was in love with our creative director Pharrell and like she literally be like like clicking and clacking in Jeffrey Campbell heels like down the hallway like when he was around but like we had a ton of stories like that I'll never forget one time I just went to the kitchen to get like a Rice Krispie treat or like a snack or something. And Polly D from Jersey Shore <laughs> was literally sitting at the table with like the king size, like the tray, like the big tray of Rice Krispies, just eating it by himself and no one else was there with him. <laughs> and I remember being like, it's like, it's not weird that Polly D, like someone from Jersey Shore is in the office, but like who like- Who just eats all these Rice Krispie treats? Literally, and what is he even <laughs> doing here? And I remember I had a friend who lived in Providence, Danique, and I remember like we were leaving and she was like, yo, Polly, can I get a ride back to PVD? <laughs> <laughs> but that's how cool the environment was. What was, it was like talent was always there. Like yeah. Action Bronson would be in the office. We would do freakathons. We had strippers in the office all the time. People would party in the office. People had fun. People would sleep in the office. Like. You know, so y'all were really we work before we work. One thousand percent. That's actually probably the damn. But I mean, like we work for the culture, though, which is almost <laughs> better, you know. But it's like heavy that vibe. And I think had it been that vibe, no one would have with it, and Carmel Loop wouldn't have been the phenomenon that it was. But because it was cultural, because we were doing it different, we're and then we were also doing political things too, lobbying for Boston to become right. more like New York, to become a nightlife city, so that talent would stay in It'd Boston stay. instead of leaving Wouldn't to go to New through. York. Right. Exactly, and so. I think a lot of those early lessons from Karma Loop really shaped uh, what I would later to do at Trillfit because mm. it showed me that as a CEO, like, you know, you have to care about your people and your business, but also like societal causes and politics affect your business. Mm. And like understanding that in the interplay is going to, maybe it'll make you a better CEO, but it'll definitely get you more press as a CEO yeah. or give you a different plan to like maneuver as being a CEO. Of course. The role of influencers. So like my big success story at Karma Loop was that this was right when hauling became a phenomenon Wait, on YouTube. Wait, hauling? Is ah, yes, yes, yes. H A U L. Hauling is the act of like you buy a really big order from any brand or wherever, it gets ordered to you, and then you show everybody what you got. You show them your haul. Mm in like a video format. And again, this is this is pre-Instagram, right? right so people right. were doing this on YouTube. This is YouTube. This exactly. Is community. Exactly. And now this is regular stuff that we do in our stories yes. now. You get something, yes. you show it, you whatever show it you uncover. You unbox whatever. Exactly. Now, see, an unboxing low-key is such a better word than a haul, right? <laughs> you can see how the marketing has yeah, evolved. But back in the day, we called it a haul. And I learned about it somehow, thought it was exciting, and thought I could build a program for Karma Loop. And I was like, you know what? We sh- this is before influencer culture mm-hmm. existed. I was like, we should send these people free product so they could put them on their hall pages and then and put and, and then put a, 
Ugh, the young brilliance. <laughs> and I was like, and we could put a link in the description code with like a promo code or whatever. And so we tested it and we tested it with two people. This girl that was like very like edgy house of horrors, like Spencer Gifts kind of vibe, but like loved like Unif and like yeah. all those like, you know, bad girl brands. So she was like perfect and she had like silver hair and this like swaggy dude named Jacob Keller who, uh, does he live Jacob in Portland? Jacob Keller lives in Portland. That's, see, I said his name because I was Bare like, knuckles. You low key, we should, we should see if he's, there. I, oh my God, I'm sure he, <laughs> I'm sure he'll remember me. But he was, he was one of the first hauls that we did. We sent him this stuff and then you know, we got the results in and it was a 24 to one return on investment. And we had never seen anything that high before, especially right. from like an unproven, untested marketer. Mm -hmm. Carmoop was my first marketing job mm -hmm. and I had no experience. I was very lucky to get the job, but some of the flack that Carmoop gets is hiring people that didn't have experience. Mm -hmm. But to that I say, look at me now, I got the experience, <laughs> didn't I? I did yeah. Exactly. And so we scaled it and we scaled it to become like a million dollar program. And wow. so after that, it was like, Greg, like, he knew that I had something special. He believed in me and he fostered it. And he personally, and Leandro gave me, really Leandro, um, gave me a lot of mentorship and guidance and opportunities that would then later help me and took the time to teach me the things I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to use Google Analytics. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to use Excel. I didn't know how to use all these things, but I was really lucky to be surrounded by people who did. Who poured into Who you. poured into me and I learned everything. Mm -hmm. And I was really good friends with somebody who now she's like a very, very successful marketer that has her own agency. And at the time, she was working as a waitress in a strip club in Boston. <laughs> and she wanted to get into marketing, you know, and be taken seriously mm -hmm. and, and all these things. And like didn't super know how to and knew that I was on the same mission too. And she started to get a little success. And I still remember like reaching out to her. And she told me she was like, she was like, if you believe in it, you can do anything. And all you have to do is teach it to yourself. She's like, that's what I did. She's like, I just read all these blogs and I taught. And, and when I saw her do it, and she was white too. And when mm -hmm. I saw her do it, I was like, okay, maybe, like, maybe I can do it. What, and so it but became, what, a, what in her made good. you think you could do it? What about observing her do it I was made like, it this is a white, I was like, this is a white girl that works in a strip club who is also in an unhappy marriage at the time who was like really alternative looking and funky, like another sort of like misunderstood mm -hmm. person in society from like working and existing in an area that a bunch of other people look down on, strip clubs. Yep. And she was still able to turn it into something that she could be proud of. Hmm. And I, I think that is what like really resonated with me because, you know, not to say that I felt like ashamed of my background or at all, because I didn't, but like, I just always grew up feeling like I wasn't good enough. Yeah. Wasn't good enough because everyone else was rich and white. Wasn't good enough because I wasn't my brother. Wasn't good enough because I was like creative and had a lot of feelings and would get upset about things. And she really showed me that like, you can pour into yourself not everyone has people that pour into that them. Pours in them. That you can do your own thing. Exactly. You can go your own journey. You can build you your can own You can figure world. it out and you right. can build it. And so, you know, I took that to heart and I, you know, I love to read. I love to learn. And I made myself as smart as I possibly could and was able to finesse my job at Carmelo into a job at Puma. Yep. I was the youngest person of color ever hired to my position in the history hmm. of Puma, which was a big deal. Yep. And then I launched a program at Puma that like, really started to set my reputation in the industry. And it was called the Puma Lab powered by Foot Locker. Okay. Puma was like suffering at Foot Locker mm -hmm. for a really long time. Yep. They needed to find a way to like re-energize sales. Mm, yep. And that was my first project. And we <laughs> pitched them a shop and shop concept, just like House of Hoops. Foot Locker had never done it with another brand before. And we got them to say yes. Wow. Um, it was definitely like trials and tribulations to get um, there for sure. Of course. But it became a massive success. And that is the entire way that I got the job at New Balance. 
Balance. Wow. New Balance saw how Puma was able to like re-energize its business. And they were like, and, I want that. Exactly, because if Puma <laughs> had been sitting on the shelf, sure, New Balance For was, sure. right? Yeah. It's like only white dads were wearing yeah, that. Yeah, similar, you know, makeup. Exactly. And this is a funny part of the story. They found out that it was me, and so they started interviewing me for a position to head up the entire lifestyle division because they were impressed with the work with them when they met me. They didn't believe that it was me. Who met with you in that regard? So <sighs> what was the makeup of people? What did they look like that White met guys. with you? I was like, I'm, okay. not gonna say, I'm not gonna say his name because I actually really like him and it's not his fault that he didn't believe my expertise. Hmm. It is the fault of society and white supremacy. Hmm. Yeah, they really put me through my paces. It, it was like the longest interview process I had ever been through. They checked and rechecked my references. They just could not believe, you know, that someone like me that looks like me with my background and my experience could could be so be, accomplished. Something like um, that. But eventually they learned yeah. and then they hired me and I, I'm not going to take credit for the Complex article, but I know that I personally like transformed New Balance's business with Joe Grandin, hmm. with Brian Sterling, with all of those people leading it from a marketing perspective and built it into a brand where they could sign people like Jaden Smith and Jack Harlow, which literally I did. And they, plus Kawhi Leonard, are like really big reasons for the shift. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you you go Karma Loop, you go Puma, mm -hmm. you go New Balance. Mm -hmm. And then at some point you decide, I need something else. What was something else outside of what you seem like you're on this trajectory in a professional yeah. career? It's something tangible that your parents can very much understand. <laughs> yes. So you leave that behind. Why? So I think it was a, like a lot of being a people pleaser, to be honest with you. And so like to get the timeline straight, when I was at Puma is when I started Trillfit. But Trillfit mm. was like a was like a part time side hustle. So well, I how was, was it? So how does that show up though? What were you? What so, was it? What was it showing up as a side hustle? So basically. I was at Puma and I had finally gotten access to have a corporate membership at Equinox. I had never had okay. one before. And I'd always wanted to go to Equinox, yeah. but never been able to afford it. Like to afford it. This is 16. The dates. Hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ah, you know what? You're keeping way better track of the timeline <laughs> than me. As I go back in my head, yes, you're exactly right. Yeah. And so we had a corporate membership at Equinox and I started going at Puma and I noticed that I was the only black person that was there as a client. The only black people that were at Equinox in Boston were like cleaning the floors. And it started to have an effect on me. And I stopped, I, but I didn't realize it at the time. I basically started going and then just stopped and never went back hmm. and was still paying the money. But then eventually was like, wait, I'm wasting all this money. Yeah. Why am I doing this? I'm not even going. I don't have this money. What's happening? And that's when I started to kind of unpack it. And I was like, there's not even any black people that go there. The music's whack. Hmm. The classes are good, but not enough to keep me there. I love black people. The music's whack. No, literally. I <laughs> it's was enough like, to like not go anywhere. No, literally. I, was, I still can remember hearing Fast Car by Tracy Chapman, No Shade, in a class. And I was like... It wasn't the cool down either. And I was like, this ain't it. This ain't it. No. And that fueled me to try something new. And that's really how Trillfit was born. But it was very much like a test project, a side hustle. When we return, Heather finds a way to mesh hip hop and fitness. What's up, Claim of Stories fam? If you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you've heard of Vistaprint, right? I mean, we've been doing a lot of incredible work together to inspire entrepreneurs of color, so we hope you're paying attention. Now, when it comes to printing things, and I mean just about anything for your business, 
whether it's stickers, t-shirts, tote bags, mugs, and even snapback hats, Vistaprint's got you. They print just about everything. So as you look for ways to help your small business stand out, think Vistaprint. The printabilities are endless at vistaprint.com. Hey, it's Bima. Welcome back to the Claimant Stories podcast. It's 2016, and an HR benefit would change Heather's life forever. Annoyed with the dull music of fitness classes, Heather saw an opportunity to make working out a little bit more lit. At this point, it's really only cardio dance. Okay. It's really only cardio dance. And you're dance. leading cardio dance? No, my co-founder, <laughs> Melissa, is leading it. I was not a fitness instructor at this time. I was just a normal person. <laughs> we just decided, like, okay, this, this can be a thing. Hmm. And so when I say that we started to make waves, like guppy waves, like hmm. li- little, little guppy waves, local press, local features, because something interesting that happens is, you know, like— have you ever experienced the feeling like something good happens to you and like for no reason at all, someone around you, they just like hate you all of a sudden? Yes. It feels <laughs> it feels so different. I started to get that vibe from colleagues within the sneaker industry. Well, you were receiving validation outside of a place that you were also yeah. successful in. And so mm-hmm. it can be very easy to understand why someone might be jealous of that, but also confusing to be like, why are you mad about something totally. that's happening in my world that doesn't necessarily impact you? A hundred percent. But at, like they really felt like it impacted them. And I think people were upset by the fact that I was building basically a performance brand and concept, right? Like huh. for fitness, Puma has a fitness arm, right? New Balance has a fitness arm that they probably wish they had access to or that they wish that they owned because they knew that they could make a ton of Did money off like of it. Did they feel like they were entitled to it because you were employed there? I mean, probably, but they could probably never prove anything to like actually take me to court. Mm-hmm. Or they underestimated me and never thought that we would get as big as we are now and they're mm-hmm. probably kicking themselves that they didn't try to sue us. Yeah. Just to like be real with you. Because mm-hmm. I remember distinctively working at New Balance and having someone report me to HR <laughs> and they said, I heard Heather White is selling Nike sneakers at her Trill Fit boutique. And I got sent to HR and I invited them all to the studio after mm-hmm. we opened it to come and look at it. And I said, we sell deodorant, we sell menstruation cups for women, Mm-hmm. We sell candles. We sell sports bras. I was like, we don't sell sneakers. Mm-hmm. We're not a sneaker store. We're see for, for yourself. Yeah, we're a fitness studio. See for yourself. And they dropped it. And no mm-hmm. one, no one apologized. No one said sorry. No one came forward. No one did anything. But like, I knew what it was. Yeah. And so eventually, like when I left New Balance and really started to pursue Trillfit more purposefully, and then eventually going Trillfit full time, like mm-hmm. within the pandemic. I'm like, I feel so much better about myself now and I know that none of those people can touch me because it's like all of those people have seen me on Good Morning America and they know me and they've seen my success and they know who I am. And it's like, we literally went to the track opening at New Balance like six months ago or eight months ago and we walked in and someone made a joke. They were like, oh, is this just Heather White's prom? It's not actually a New Balance party. <laughs> right? We literally walked in like, like they didn't even invite us. Jack yeah. Harlow, who was performing, invited me and I brought, oh, wow. the, and I brought the entire Trill Fit team and we said hello to everyone and we made a lot of connections and we had so much fun. But, you know. That wasn't is, the experience that you 
at all. When you were building that, that wasn't the experience. No, at all. Right. No one, no, except from like my direct colleagues who are my friends on mm -hmm. North America, no one was supportive. No mm -hmm. one was friendly. No one was kind. No one helped me. No one supported us. To this day, New Balance has never sponsored a Trill Fit event. But what I will say that I'm really proud of is Kasha Davis, who is actually the, the daughter of Jim Davis, who owns New Balance, um, is an investor in Trillfit and she invested $100,000. So for me to know that someone else in that organization, does potenti does potentially also unseen, a young woman mm. in a family of billionaires trying mm. to forge her own path, like overlooked by the heir apparent, to see the same thing happen to me mm. and to use her influence to support my story, to me, is like the picture of what white allies in that position should be. And Kash and I have talked about it a ton and like, you know, her friendship um, and her leadership and her advice has meant everything to the mm. business because I know she really cares. But like what I tell people now is, you know, when you work in those big companies, you know, they might act like they care about you, but you will be able to discern for yourself if they really if they do, really if they do. really don't. I'm like, they have a $10 million marketing budget and they literally work to get women fit. If they cared about black women's <laughs> wellness, they would have talked to us by some point. <laughs> um, we're literally the face of black wellness. There's no one that's bigger There's than no us. There's no one bigger, right. Tell me about the moment you started to build and get serious about it being something you wanted to pursue full time, right? Because you have this partner and it is a side hustle on the side, but you mentioned, you know, probably around that era of like 2018, 2019, you're like, I want to actually open up a location. Yeah. So that's no easy feat. I know. And especially not easy for someone who hasn't done it before. Um, <laughs> open retail is very trippy, especially in Boston. That's a whole nother can of worms. Talk me through that process and deciding we're gonna we're gonna open up this wellness facility. Yeah, it's actually a really good story. So I would say like the big impetus for me was I got invited to go to a trip to Israel and I had never been to Israel before. I had never been to the Middle East. I didn't know about the conflict. I like you know, knew about the existence of Palestine and, and very much like aligned with the Palestinian people as a, a person of color, but didn't really understand like the underground movements or what it looked like. Really only understood like what was said in America, which we know is not always truthful. Mm -hmm. So I went for this 14 day experience and it was a leadership trip. And it was really like, how can you become a better leader? Like looking at it through the prism of international conflict <laughs> between Israel and Palestine and Gaza and Hamas and all of this stuff. And it was a crazy experience. And, and I went with, 50 other like talented influencer, CEO, mm -hmm. entrepreneur types, like the person that started Goop with Gwyneth Paltrow, multiple <laughs> people that worked for Barack Obama, like top Jeez. of, no, literally like I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> top of the line You're folks. Meant to be there. But when I was there, I was really wrestling with the idea of should I stay at New Balance or not? And I was talking mm -hmm. about it with everybody about like, cause I was thinking to myself, what does it mean to be a leader during this time? What does it mean to be a young black leader during this mm -hmm. time? My values were getting really sharp for me. And I knew that New Balance didn't align with my values mm -hmm. after everything had just happened with like Trump and being flown out right. to like prove that New Balance wasn't racist in a way that, you know, was really racist. <laughs> I just kept thinking like, you know, can I work for them? Can I be this person to do that? But I never even knew anyone that quit a job because of racism hmm. ever. Mm. It is literally the most, like, honestly, when you think about it in this capitalistic society, it is the most frivolous reason that you could like leave a job. Hmm. Like imagine me telling my parents, no, I'm leaving this job because they're racist. They don't treat me well. And my mom's like, like, that's everybody, duh, duh. 
Yeah. Right? But at, for me, it was untenable. And it was like one of the last days I was in Israel, I had a conversation with this guy, Ethan Appleby, and he helped me. Just he was like, I think you already decided. Hmm. And, I, and I knew what I had to do after that. And so when I came back, I gave my notice to Chris Davis, who's the CMO. Um, at the time, he was just the head of global lifestyle. And, you know, it was a little bit like, you know, being an extra on the show Succession, you know, because this is a, this is a family of billionaires. Right. And they have so much power. Mm -hmm. They have so much power. They literally opened the first, like, non-city erected subway station in Boston, like, in a, in a matter of months, right? Wow. Like, they're, they're super rich. Um, and he told me, you know, about his dreams that he had for the company and, mm -hmm. and all of these things and that he wasn't able to accomplish them. And I remember just feeling like, you are a white guy in this game and you have all of this money and backing behind you and you own 25% of a billion dollar organization. And if you can't make change here, then no one can and I can't be here. Wow. And I told him that and I was crying, yeah. you know, because I was like, this is my mentor. Mm -hmm. Like, and I wanted to do it and I wanted to build the vision, but I just realized if he doesn't think he can do it, there's no way there's someone no else, way. there's literally no other way. And once I knew that that was true, I knew that I couldn't stay there and I left. And everything after then has been like transformed, very powerful, really, really good vibes, like mm -hmm. the energy, like imagine like quitting because of racism and then like three months later you're on Good Morning America with Michael Strahan and Robin and you know that everyone in the country is watching That's you. That's insane. It's insane. How does that happen? God, to be <laughs> honest, to be honest, mm -hmm. literally, literally, yeah. say your prayers. They, yeah. re they really work. I love this. Um, Take me to the name. I think the name's super interesting. Trophy. Thank you to my poetry um, <laughs> degree. I love words. I think, it's, I think it's so interesting and, it, and maybe it connects with me a little bit more because I'm from the South mm -hmm. and um, yeah, Trill was just, you know, okay. we listen to a lot Bumby. of, you know, Southern hip hop, a lot of Texas, <laughs> a lot of Houston, uh -huh. um, even in Baton Rouge, that, yeah. that language was used. What inspired you to use it as a part of your name? Well, so, and this is funny, and you will like this because you're a fashion person and a streetwear guy. So I wanted a name that could clearly communicate the idea of what we were doing instantly, and mm. I wanted something catchy. Mm. And so Trillfit first came to me, and there was actually like, not a lot of people, definitely one big voice that was like, this name is trash. <laughs> and he kept telling me, he was like, because this was around the time that Bintrill was really popular. Yeah. Yeah. And there was Bintrill, and then we had Pintrill, yeah. my friend Jordan, you know, and then all these, right? So like Trill was like around right. in not a non-adjacent space. So I understood his feedback, but I didn't like his feedback and yeah. I, didn't, I didn't really care about it. <laughs> so I did it anyways. And I, and I, I, well, I asked him and I also asked Frank the Butcher and Frank the Butcher liked the name and I was like, okay, that's enough for me. That's enough for me. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, what do you know, dude? And so we did it and it has become so like synonymous with the mm. experience and the brand and people get such like juice and energy and you kind of know it. what you're going to come from. Like if you, you're going totally. to trail fit, like it's going to be energy. If it's not, that's kind of Totally, weird. totally. <laughs> and it's like, sometimes I'm like, damn, like I really made this brand so good. It's crazy. Like even I started just tagging this thing on Instagram, like hashtag trail fit girls, trail mm -hmm. fit girls. And then it just became this connotation in Boston. I remember like the CEO of Blavity like DM somebody and he, and he was like, 
yo, I feel like my next ex-girl is going to be a troll fit girl, I just got to say. And I was like, ooh, I was like, I love that we have this I connotation out here in the streets. And then you started to see members adopt it. Like, you know, we have this member, Kat Bossy, who's incredible. And um, she works at a museum in Boston. And she led an elaborate strike because they weren't, they were not paying the workers fairly. Hmm. And troll fit supported them striking. It was actually two of the girls are troll fit members, Laura and Kat Bossy. Mm-hmm. And they wore their troll fit shirts while they were protesting in front, <laughs> holding their signs. And we put it all over social and everything. And she sent me a message afterwards and she was just like, she's like, I've always been proud to be a troll fit girl. But she said, I never would have thought any other place I frequent in my life would have supported this issue. This and the way that you guys did is incredible. And Laura, who was also a part of that protest, she she invested in troll fit. She invested mm-hmm. $5,000 in troll fit. And so to me, it's like being a good person, making these little decisions, showing people that you care. Mm. listening to them, making people feel like they belong is everything because it's like, whether it's monkeypox or like cyberbullying or like school shootings, like, you know, just being black in America is like a death sentence for a lot of people, right? It's like, it's, it's can be really daunting to just step outside. So sometimes just having one person person. that you see who's going to say hi to you. Like we say hi to everyone who comes into the studio and it's like now working from home, if you're a remote worker, you may not have talked to anybody else. That whole day. That whole day. But Trillfit? Exactly. Was the experience you got to interact with people and feel different. Right. Like feel seen, right? Exactly. We hug people. Hmm. We feel good, right? Like we get after it. And it's not until you really like come back and reflect that it's like, Wow, like no one hugged me today. Or like I didn't, I like no one touched me. No one said my name. Hmm. I didn't, I didn't speak any words today. And you're like, is that normal or is it not? Right. But I think a lot of people are experiencing that right now, just because of how you know the world is. Yeah, we're coming back outside, quote unquote. Whatever right. that means. Whatever that means. Tell me about because you've mentioned a couple times the money that you've been raising. And that is a critical part to starting a business, operating a business. If you don't have adequate capital, it's very hard to run that business. And a lot of black folks have trouble with that. A lot of folks of color have trouble with that, but especially black women have difficulty with that. Two-part question. How much money did you establish that you needed to raise to get open? And then how'd you go about raising that money? So we internally kicked off our fundraising process last November, and it probably became like more public uh, this year, February, okay. just to give you the timeline, and yep. we're not done yet. Um, we're taking a little pause. So we're raising $2 million. Wow. We, I know. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? Uh, we have received 300000 so far, Congrats. which is, like, amazing. Thank you so much. Actually, a little more than 300 maybe, like, 350 And... You need capital to run a business, right? And Trillfit is a cash-intensive business because we're a brick and mortar. The other challenge, I mean, there's there's so many challenges, hmm. and I'm, I really feel like I'm learning every single day. Yeah. But a couple of the things that have become clear to me is like one with fundraising. I mean, for white people, it's and for people in tech, it seems to be like a one and done thing. Like we're doing the raise, hmm. we did it in and three to four it's, months. It's, it's, it's done. Over. We got it. It's over. We're good. Like I know someone who raised two million dollars in like two months, and he's a white guy. Who's Jeez. very who's very connected, yeah. and he had a yeah, and he and he comes from money, and he had a great job before this, and he knows a lot of people who have money, so it wasn't hard for him. For me, it has been hard, but it's been hard for another reason because, for me, the capital raise has at times had to fall like to second place, uh, in favor of getting the business right. 
because we're still figuring out how to get the business right. We have an amazing brand. We have mm-hmm. an incredible idea. We make quite a bit of money. So we're doing all of the right things, but right, there are still right, right. a couple of things that like are not working the way that they should and we're changing it now. And you're tweaking, but that's a part of business, right? You're always going to need to constantly evolve. Exactly. And it's like with the pandemic, right? Like we were literally an intense in-person fitness experience where you'd be grinding up on the person next to you (laughs) and sweating on them. And then COVID-19 happened. It's like, if you're a stranger, please don't breathe on me. (laughs) Don't breathe on me. Don't sweat on me. Our studio literally had no windows that open. Right. Wow. And COVID, literally, it just wasn't built that way. So no, literally. if that happens to you in COVID, what happens to your business? We had to shut down. We literally shut down in March uh, for much longer than we had to because I had no idea how we were going to keep people safe. We This is an airborne disease. Yeah. At this time, we didn't really know as much as we know now about mm-hmm. COVID-19. There was no vaccine. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, we are literally in a 2200 square foot space. And it's like a glass box of just virus. Right. I was like, there's not a window that opens. You have to be kidding me. No, there's right? no but way now you it's like now, now we know that. Yeah, we know differently. And I'm like, <laughs> dang. But uh, you, you had to take the right precautions for your community that you built, totally. that you care so much yeah. about, that you've curated and brought folks together. Because we're like, together. these are people of color, and we knew that they were going to be disproportionately affected by the virus. So I was like, I'm not about to let them come to Trillfit and all die. Not me. Not nope. me. No. Nope. What was the transition? And, and again, so, I, I feel like that might be a whole nother business. So. Yeah. So we were the first wellness business in Boston to close, which was a really mm. hard decision, especially when no one else was doing it because you have people in your ear being like, you're crazy. Why aren't you doing this? How are you going to pay the rent? But so we were the first business to close, which meant that we were the first business to get our digital platform raising. And I think for me, like I had gone through weeks and weeks of looking at people's faces, getting more and more anxiety ridden based on hearing the news. And it was stressful. So I was like, we have to do something. And so I remember I made the call on a Friday. And I told Melissa to get as many instructors as she could for the Sunday. Mm -hmm. And I got a videographer because I was like, we're just going to film classes. We did like four classes back to back, shot them all. I was injured. So in the videos, you literally see I'm injured. But we shot everything. And we closed that Sunday night. Me and Melissa did a video. And I sent the email to everybody, closing effectively immediately. And by that Wednesday, we were able to get our digital platform up. And we called it Trillfit at Home. And so we were like, okay, we're going to have these classes on YouTube. We're going to offer it for free. And then we're going to teach like live classes on Zoom. (laughs) And when I told those people, they literally thought I was nuts. And I'm used to this feeling now. (laughs) And it's like partially because of like how I was raised. And also maybe it just comes with like being a visionary. People tell me I'm crazy all the time. And I remember Melissa being like, no one else uses Zoom. Everyone's using Instagram. Like, why wouldn't we do that? And I was like, one, I don't do what everybody else does. Mm -hmm. Two, Instagram is only a one-way experience. It's like someone just watching you teach. Where's the community building Mm -hmm. in that? It's trash. (laughs) And so we created Zoom. And because you could see each other, you could chat, you could talk, you could do this, you could interact. We built an entire business. And this was before anyone was doing classes on Zoom. Mm -hmm. So I really believe that we were the innovators. Before we knew it, we had over 10,000 people streaming every single month coming in, and Trillfit became wait, like wait, a global wait, brand. Wait, wait, 10,000 people were streaming in? Mm-hmm. So literally, you, pandemic allowed you to like no, literally. quadruple. No, like, literally. However many times literally. your business. And the thing that was lucky for us was because the community saw that we were taking our core product offering and giving it to the community for free mm-hmm. because we wanted people to survive and like... I remember being in a meeting with the old mayor, not the new mayor, and literally saying, like, if everyone in the community dies because of COVID, what's the point of even having a business? And everyone was, like, super shocked. Hmm. 
but that's just I'm just like a straight shooter. Yeah, just, you cut through. Yeah, I just like say stuff like that. But I re I really meant that. I was like, what's the point? Mm. And so no one canceled their memberships. And this was at the same time that there was a multi-million dollar lawsuit going on with Town Sports because they were withholding people's membership dues and people wanted it back. So I was like, wow, look at corporate America taking this thing and everyone hates them and us being this upstart and leading with a different way is providing value and we're still able to pay our rent mm -hmm. for a space that costs $10,000 a month and we definitely don't have it. So that kept us in business and I knew that we had enough money until August. So this is March. I was like, yep. we have enough money to last to us to, to August. August. So I was like, we'll keep the membership keep free <laughs> until July mm -hmm. and July 1st, we'll start to sell it. And hopefully in July we can sell enough to, yeah, yeah, to, to, to start flow. doing it. Right. And it worked. Wow. It worked. It was like one of the craziest risks I've done. And I will say now I'm trying to give myself more buffer on these risks. Because <laughs> yeah, when yeah. you think about it, it's like, dang, what if you didn't make it in July, right. August, like you out but on the street. You, can't, you understand that you can't think that way, yeah. right? You have to fully be in denial and you have to fully be convicted of which you want to do because if you don't, you're not going to lead the way that you would 100%. lead. Right? You wouldn't be as confident in your 100%. leadership. percent. And so I think for me, like when that had a win and, and paid off really big, I was like, ooh, okay, like I'm getting good at this. I think George Floyd was another big moment for mm. me that kind of like, you know, just like catalyze the person I'm going to be because, you know, you know, at first I didn't want to make a comment on it. And, and my mentor, um, her name is Malia Lazu, and she is incredibly accomplished and works for the liberation of black people like in her in her bones. Mm. We we always joke she's like the female Barack Obama because mm. they're both from Hawaii. They're both black, but they both have white moms uh, <laughs> and they know each other. Uh, <laughs> and that's literally her favorite joke. But she told me she was like, you have to say something. And I was like, I don't why do I have to say something? I was like, the pastors are saying stuff and you know, the elected official, Ayanna Presley saying, like, I don't need to say anything. Like, why would I need to say something? And I was like, and isn't this a time for joy? Mm. Should, like, why do we always have to talk about people getting mm. like murdered in the street? Like, yeah. you know, it's like, like why? But why? she made me really understand that like, I had built this dedicated big community in Boston and that of a lot of black people and that this was a black issue and that people were waiting to hear what I had to say and that they would wait patiently, but that they were waiting. And so like, I had to say something. And so I thought about what I wanted to say and like, you know, racism being named a public health crisis and black men being murdered in the street and black women being murdered in bed and all of these things. And I was like, you know what? Like, we are just not well. I was like, we aren't well. And I was like, but if you're black in this country, you're used to not being well. You grow up not being well and you know it so deeply and so intimately that you don't even realize that it's a thing. And that's the saddest part. It's like, you know, black parents love their kids differently because they literally remember in their bodies through like trauma what it is like for their children to be stolen from them and sold into slavery. And so I'm like, I can't really blame my dad for not paying any attention to me growing up because it's like that stuff lingers, right? And, and you see that effect. And so for me, I was like, we need to call for wellness. And I was like, black people need wellness. Black people need wellness more than anyone in this country, right? Tell me why black people don't believe in therapy when we built this country and we were living in a caste dominated society where we are literally the untouchables and no one talks about it and we suffer and we endure and we let them kill us and we're okay. And there are a couple of explosions of protests and maybe people will listen to 
you, yeah. but you wake up and you go to sleep every day knowing that your life is less important than someone who looks differently than you, mm -hmm. literally just because their skin's a different color. You know, we need wellness. We need ways to feel good. We need mm -hmm. ways to release the trauma. We need ways to like reconnect with each other and discover things about each other. And so I made that sort of, you know, my rallying You're, cry. Right, that was the yeah. centering point of we your message. We called it the call for wellness. And like, mm. that's that's what we need right now. And, you know, looking at like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks and like, you know, there's a quote and it's like, the most radical, I think it's Bell Hooks, the most radical act of self-care I can think of as a black woman is like investing in myself. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. It's like like that, that sort of uh, sensibility is what we all rallied around and we held a bunch of community conversations to talk about the issues in wellness that we see where it's like, okay, this is an industry where you use your body for work. Most industries where you use your body for work, it's mainly filled with people of color. Mm -hmm. Think Whether it's baseball, the NFL, mm -hmm. or you break rocks on the side of the road, it's mostly people of color who, right. who use their body to, to make money, to mm -hmm. labor. Um, but in wellness, you know, less than 5% of the practitioners in this trillion dollar industry are people of color. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that is so crazy. I was like, so there's a reason why you never see black people at Equinox. There's, there's a reason why you don't see black yoga instructors or Indian yoga instructors for that, Matt. Like, there is a reason. And, and the costs to get that training are so exorbitantly high. Mm. It's how the caste system of wellness redefines itself to lock people out. Wow. Um, and so we opened up conversations about it. And it was really great. And to be honest, like, I mean, like way more white people than I thought would join. Definitely. We had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people join every single open session that mm. we had, which was wonderful. Are those people doing the work right now? I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, but, and so that's something I'm thinking about. But they came and they listened right. and they heard. Right, and this isn't is something you're doing for the moment. This is exactly. you said a call for wellness, and my imagination is that that's a call for wellness for the next Enjoying. 10, 20, 30, exactly. 40 years. You know, forever, right. for, like forever. Right. You know, so I think it's important. I think you know what Trillfit can continue to do, and this makes me think of another like Malia Lazu moment. I remember. <laughs> I got asked to introduce Brian Stevenson on stage, like in front of 26,000 people. And I'd Sheesh. never spoken in front of that many people before. And I was so nervous, of but course. so honored that they would ask me <laughs> to introduce Brian Stevenson. And in my head, I was like, they're not just doing it because you're the only black person. They're doing it because they like what you think. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember reading the first version of my introduction and uh, my mentor, Malia, like hated it. And I think I cried too, because she's like, that's what you're going to say to introduce Brian Stevenson. And she was like, this is a man who literally pokes his finger in the eye of injustice. <laughs> And you're just gonna say that? And I was like, dang, okay. I was like, all right, let me reset. I was like, okay, all right, let me, let me, let me, you know, dust it off, shake it off. Um, and then what I ended up coming up with was like nothing short of like really fucking powerful, mm. like a bunch of people like standing ovation, okay. crying. I don't usually like to like talk about myself. In that perspective, I would never want to make a, I would never want to give, this is the people pleaser, I would never mm. want to give somebody else the opportunity to say about me that I took my opportunity at in introducing Brian Stevenson and that I made it about myself mm. and I made it about Trollfit, yeah. you know, because yep. I just don't want to be that no, type yeah, of person. Yeah, that's not what you want. But it was a really, really incredible moment. And like, it was then that I realized part of community building is 
reinforcing your message however you can mm. and whenever you can whenever. and even when it feels uncomfortable for you you have to do it mm. and one thing that Malia always reminded me of um, and she says Martin Luther King used to say this is that if you stop preaching to the choir they'll forget how to sing mm. and it's like yeah because I and I can understand why I was like you know why do I always have to be the one why do I have to but then you it's needed like it to be framed to understand exactly. who you are in, exactly in that place and now i get it yeah and now i get it so then take that moment and then flash forward that was before the pandemic yeah when i introduced brian stevenson flash forward to like last year for example in boston there's a prominent develop like billion dollar developer company okay. um and they were putting on a fitness series and i got the email and the entire fitness series was only staffed by white people mm. And so I saw it and I was like, LOL, very Boston. But I made a joke to one of my colleagues and I said, how much do you want to bet that they posted a black square about George Floyd and like, this is what they're doing oh, now. Gosh. And she, and, and yeah, and she was like, ooh, let me go look that up. And she found it in a sure second. Enough. And I said, knew it. And I put it on my Instagram and it became a news story. Wow. Yeah. Like, and that for me was a real turning point when I realized like, oh, I actually am like, yeah, like more you, of a public you figure have your now. Space, and, like, you have your seat. <laughs> and like when I talk, people actually do listen because it, it became like a front page story in Boston Magazine. It was like Heather White calls out this, you know, real estate developer yeah. for not being um, diverse. And, you know, they acknowledged that they, that they, were, <laughs> that they were wrong. And it obviously became a very big news story. And so I think, not that I'm sort of known as like a whistleblower, because I don't think it's that, but I think I'm regarded as someone who has really tightly held morals and someone who's not afraid to speak her mind mm. if you see those morals being impugned. And I'm really proud that I've become that person. But before, I was not someone to be like, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, because right. my dad was just keep your head down. Right, like, you were more like, in this pleasing space. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as we reflect a little bit, right, you grew up in this very people-pleasing type of personality set, women, right? Because that's did. what you were taught in your culture mm -hmm. and that's what you observed. And now you go through all the experiences and now you show up differently. You show up assertive. You show up confident. You show up with a point of view that you're unwilling to let go of. Yeah. When you think back to your younger self, what advice would you give them along that journey? It sounds simple, but like, you know, trust yourself. Trust mm. yourself and like, you have value. And I, I feel like, I don't know, just because of my own healing journey, I've just been thinking about, and I don't have kids, but I've been thinking about like, just like parenting so much or like the messages that we pass on to children. Um, because I think it's only now that I'm 34, I'm really understanding like how deeply ingrained these things become. And I know for myself, I would never want to make a child feel the way that I felt growing up like and I'm a sensitive person and even now like I cry all the time now and it's fine and it's different but like my childhood was lonely um, I didn't have a lot of friends I read books all the time I watched the kids in my neighborhood sit outside like and watch my brother train and like run up with bricks in his book bag and no one pay any attention to me I like just grew up feeling ignored for so long. So to be someone who really felt voiceless, to develop a voice and develop a strong voice and then get good at using that voice and then to not be afraid of using that voice takes a lot of work, especially as it relates to things about racism. Because, you know, I have so many friends that experience racism all the time and never speak about it. Women who experience sexism all the time and never speak about it. Yeah. But it's like, you know, we excuse a lot and it's really hard to find your sense of self and like, 
if I look back on my journey, I think it's incredibly hard to find a sense of yourself if you don't have a therapist or if you don't mm. have someone working with you on it. It's really hard to do by yourself because you need to have the ability to like get outside of yourself to be truly objective. You need to have someone kind of like rotate the picture for him to say exactly. like, look at it this way yep. and see just what you think. Mm. Um, and it took me a long time to get there. And I'm doing this amount of self-work has uh, like given me uh, the permission to make mistakes and change my mind and change the way that I want to do things without like feeling bad about it. Totally. That was Heather White, a mogul with all of the moves. Find out more about Heather and get access to all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate and review us. Stay up to date with our latest news following us on Instagram at Claim of Stories, or you can reach out with a message at hello at claimastories.com. Our show this week is produced by BJ Fragozo, Pervy Patel, Natalie Yazzie, Jericho Trim, and the team over at DB Podcasts. Original music provided by Adrian Anaya and vocals provided by Rosella. Special thanks to Jordan Dinwiddie, Cena Clark, Clint Blaine, and Damian Mitchell. I'm Bima, and you've been listening to the Claim of Stories podcast, powered by Vista. Vista.